0: The Axe of the Blood God. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cat Bailey. With me, as always, Nadia Oxford.
1: Hello, everybody. We survived GDC. Um, it was it was a thing, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, it was, it's been a very wild roller coaster week. Uh, a lot of things going on. Uh, traditionally, GDC is my favorite time of year because so many different shows are different in their own way. For example, uh, E3 is very commercialist, mm-hmm. commercial, commercialism driven. So you go to the the big fancy press conferences. We don't even really go to the press conferences. We watch them with everybody else and then we right. cover them as they're happening. Cause why even bother being inside except to be part of the experience? I don't know. Um, and then you interview the developers and the developers are just pitching their product at of you course. essentially. Yeah. Uh, whereas GDC, the developers are often more reflective mm-hmm. and everybody is kind of mixing together. People are rubbing elbows, uh, press press, Uh, indie developers, and there's much more of a sense of we're all in this together as opposed to here's the press and here's the fans, and then on the other side, there are the developers. Does that make sense to you?
1: Yeah, it does. Um, I'd really like to attend GDC one year, but it makes more sense for you guys to go because you're all there.
0: Yes, we're all here in San Francisco. Uh, And it's also fun. I I would love to go to GDC with no obligations and just be able to attend the panels because the panels are have the fun to be yeah. perfectly honest. So, um obviously over the years things have changed a bit. Now it's like, oh, we're going to be doing events and appointments cuz a lot of um out of town press are here in San Francisco to do things, et cetera. but uh yeah, it's still uh, it's still definitely my favorite just because it's such a great chance to have an actual honest to god conversation with developers.
1: Yeah. That's another reason why it'd be nice to go. Well, maybe I can go next year.
0: Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, let Let's start by recapping a little bit about what happened at GDC uh, and some of the news that came out of this week, and then we'll talk about about know Kuni too, because you've been playing Nino Kuni too.
1: Yes, I have. I in, in, indeed have been playing Nino Kuni too.
0: And then I'm going to go and collapse in a bed somewhere.
1: <laughs> yes, me too.
0: Yes, it'd be That's really a great. Plan. Yes, excellent, okay. first things first, GDC lots happening uh, a lot of conversation about unionization actually Nadia that was the yes. hot topic of the week starting with Matt Kim um, starting with Matt Kim doing a big interview and yes uh, I, I realize that this is somewhat adjacent to the major topic of this podcast, but it, it's sort of hard to ignore you know
1: exactly yeah um- yeah, I am totally 100% pro-union for all aspects of game development, or even even if part of the industry was unionized, as they say, uh, a high tide lifts all boats. So I, I just really, it breaks my heart to see developers working like 60-hour weeks, not just during like a, a, pr- a crunch period of a few weeks, but like there all the time, 60 hours, 70 hours. Mm. Uh, they burn out, they drop out. Um, game developers are not being allowed to grow old and like enjoy their craft and pass it on to younger developers they all they fade away um, you look at like videos of miyamoto and Dezuka talking about oh this is how game development was back then this is how it is now haha isn't that fun you don't you're not gonna get to see that very much because all these developers aren't allowed to age they just they're pushed out of the industry, and it's treated like, well, okay, well, you can leave, and we'll just bring in some fresh meat, and they'll get ground up in the machine. That's not the way it should be. Games are a, are a very important medium. They're, they're artistic. They're narrative. They, they deserve to, to have all sorts of voices there, and it can't I, be that way.
0: I, I won't dwell on this for too long. I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine who is in tech, and we were talking about the fact that this is a huge problem across all of tech. And we were also talking about whether unionization is actually possible. And Jason Schreier wrote a piece for Kotaku, uh, banging the drum for it. And I-, I think that, frankly, I'm not a labor lawyer, so it's difficult for me to say what the actual mechanics behind unionizing would actually look like and everything. I do know that this is it is harder than any time in history in Absolutely. the U.S., yeah. to actually union unionize. I do know that uh, political forces in this country have conspired to break unions as much as humanly possible, in large part because they primarily uh, support the Democrats and have over the years. But I mean, there are, I, I think that might be a little reductive. Over the years, a lot of different things have happened. And so I don't know if it's quite so simple to say as developers must unionize yeah, it's but very
1: difficult um there are a lot of states that are quote unquote right to work uh
0: uh-huh.
1: like it legally in canada you can form a union all you have to do is basically vote for one i'm not 100 sure of the process i actually learned about in school i have a feeling you didn't
0: <laughs> no <laughs> but, i didn't
1: but uh yeah even even in canada even though we can legally do it, it it's still hard because you still have those you know people in charge who really really don't want you to and in the case of Walmart, which I think there was a store in Quebec that tried to unionize, and Walmart's like, nope, and they just shut that right down. But it's so it's it's not easy. You're absolutely right.
0: Yeah. Good luck getting one studio to try and unionize because that stuff would be uh, broken. But I I think that when it comes to I think I'm going to take it into a slightly darker place and say just that this the games industry has been broken for 20 years now, mm-hmm. and uh, the pressures of actually making games, have increased exponentially over time. Uh, Everybody is having the screws turned on them. And I don't know if there is a solution. It may just be that everything breaks, that it's not sustainable, and who knows what's going to happen when and if that happens, or if it will ever happen, if the screws will just keep turning and we will keep going through the meat grinder, and we maybe lose some of the spirit of creativity behind the games they just become boring ass commercial products which would suck
1: (laughs) or more people go indie i mean we uh we heard a little bit about stardew valley Uh, i wrote an article about that because someone else wrote an article about that about uh, eric barone who did stardew valley and how he actually didn't want to become part of the industry because he knew it would chew him up and spit him out so that's why he started working on on his own game by himself kind of as an accident, kind of to prove to himself, okay, I can prove a ga- I can make a game, I want to improve my skill set, he got sucked into Stardew Valley, and the rest is history.
0: Got lucky, too. I mean, it creating a game like Stardew Valley is basically like winning the lottery, right? I <laughs> Pretty mean- much.
1: He, all the stars aligned for him. It's a great game, and uh, a lot of people, even though they didn't know about Harvest Moon, uh, that Harvest Moon sort of gameplay feedback loop is very, very comforting for a lot of people, and they realize that now.
0: On a funner note, I got to see a lot of really fun and interesting things uh, during GDC. Uh, this is the Monster Hunter director was in town, uh, and he talked a bit about prototyping the monsters, including uh, including one of the monsters that ultimately didn't make it to the game. But apparently a lot of monster long-term Monster Hunter fans were like, damn, I wanted to know what that lo- looked like.
1: Yeah, I can't remember his name. And it was like kind of a Leviathan, like a, a water mm-hmm. monster that was introduced in Monster Hunter 3.
0: Yep. Uh, I got to interview Mike Laidlaw and David Brevik. Uh, oh, Mike fun. Laidlaw, of course, is the writer of Dragon Age, and I got to interview David Brevik, who helped design Diablo and is working as, on his own uh, game. It, it lurks below. I got to try a game called Zenki Zero, which is by the Duncan Rompa fan people. Mm. I got to hear Ultima Online War stories. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you got to hear them from uh, Garrett himself, didn't you?
0: yes I did uh he was there and they were wearing the costumes
1: like oh the Lord British
0: yes like, from from my vantage point uh it didn't look like it looked like he was just wearing a crown no he was wearing the full cosplay wow. with the crown and everything he was full Lord British
1: <laughs> that's a lot of fun I uh, and you said it was like a Wild West at one point in the olden days
0: yeah I mean I guess I should start with Ultima Online right I mean. Uh, they were talking about, basically, the process from conception all the way through. And people forget this, but basically, Ultima Online used to be something akin to Madden back in the day. Really? Yeah, I mean, just in that they kept pumping them out, and they were working oh, right. on Ultima, they were working on Ultima 9. Because right. EA, you know, EA, the EA had already mastered the art of the annual series by the time, by that point, right? Right. And apparently they'd been kicking around the idea to make Ultima Online since the 80s. Jeez. They wanted to take code from like Ultima 4 to try and make an Ultima Online. And uh, they w- they took the pitch to EA and EA and they were, they pitched the idea of making an MMORPG and EA was like, what the hell is an MMORPG? <laughs> And uh, they basically had to go back and forth. There was much kicking and screaming. They finally secured $250,000 to make a, a prototype. And they were able to do that. And actually, the prototype that resulted became a good chunk of the full game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, one of the problems that they had was when they finished going through the initial $250,000 investment and they wanted to run a public beta, but they literally could not do that because they had run out of money. They couldn't even press the discs. Oh, because it, this was the 90s. Yeah. People couldn't download games over modems.
1: No, definitely not. 56K? Hell no.
0: So they had to send discs to people who signed up for this beta. So they came up with a bright idea, and I didn't realize this. They came up with the bright idea of charging people five bucks a hit to join the public beta. Oh. Wow. And they were expecting... I forget, they were expecting maybe, they were hoping for 30000 and they got like 50000
1: Oh, wow, good for them.
0: Yeah, and just, you know, it might have even been le- a lot less than that. But mm-hmm. they were like, oh, okay, lots of people coming in. And they said, and that's how we basically accidentally invented early access.
1: <laughs> Pay your own postage, there's your early access. Uh,
0: but they, they, you know, they went through some of the more famous stories. Have you, You've heard the Lord British's assassinated story, right?
1: Oh, that's ancient, but I can't remember how it goes.
0: That's a famous one. Uh, they at the end of the public beta testing, they're going through the different towns, congratulating, uh, thanking everybody, and uh, they had done a server wipe, and they had to re-roll their characters, right? Right. And when re-rolling the characters, Richard Garrett had to remember to change uh, to hit the little flag to make sure that he was invulnerable because people would always be trying to gank him because. <laughs> There, there was player player killing in this game. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and he uh, apparently forgot, and at one point he's addressing a crowd, because this is literally a thing that you were doing in Ultima Online. They were yeah. actually in a world, um, and somebody casts a fire spell, and <laughs> one of his fellow developers just laughs and steps into the fire, because he's like, ah, I'm invulnerable, and Richard Garriott steps into it as well as Lord British, and he keels over dead.
1: Oh no, Lord British barbecue!
0: And everybody in the studio went, well, Oh, what do we do?" Because <laughs> I mean, the they—if you die, you can be you can loo- be looted—and they didn't want the players freaking looting Lord <laughs> British.
1: Looting Lord British's <laughs> corpse.
0: So they had the bright idea of the other developer unleashing a whole bunch of demons. Uh, uh. to keep the crowd at bay. And then they surrounded the body <laughs> so that it couldn't be looted. Wow. But everybody was on their phone lines and it was just complete chaos. How <laughs> well, so even
1: tied up the phone lines. Like, just how mm-hmm. 90s is that?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. It was completely 90s. I I, I just think it's one of my all-time favorite MMO stories. Uh, the assassination of Richard uh, Lord British.
1: Yeah, that's actually... Um, I told you briefly on Twitter about a friend of mine who played Ultima online and he gave a sword to a merchant to appraise or something like that and the, the merchant just takes off with it. <laughs> and I posted that gif of Homer in New York where he's trying to explain to a cop how he got robbed and the cop just grabs his luggage and runs. Because it always reminded yes. me of that scene.
0: Oh, absolutely. They said that player killing was actually a gigantic problem with that yeah. game.
1: Yeah, it was infamous for that. For You mm-hmm. want to talk about bad trolling? That was the home of bad trolling.
0: And they showed a picture of uh of a whole bunch of people coming in and going hey look it's role players get them <laughs> and the role players were like oh no PAKers, ah
1: <laughs> wow
0: and i it just goes to show the mi- and it goes to show the way that richard garrett's mind works and this is another famous story but the fact that they realized they had too many people in this game and they couldn't put everybody in the same map right and they were like, uh, well, I guess we're going to have to break him up into different, like, shards. And, but at the time, the term shard was not a thing. And so, but Richard Garriott was like, no, I, everybody needs to be having the same experience. Well, how can I make sure this work in universe? He, like, comes up with an in-universe experience, uh, explanation of nice. this demon's, uh, like, thing breaks into dozens of different shards of the world and different people are on it. And... That's how you ended up with the term shard.
1: <laughs> That's pretty cool. That's like basically what Final Fantasy XIV did with the uh, primal Bahamut. Okay, he nuked the world, and World of Warcraft did the same thing with uh, the the cataclysm dragon.
0: Mm-hmm, exactly. So,
1: first of that sc- first of that storytelling type,
0: but it really was a just complete wild west. These people had absolutely no idea what they were doing or yeah. what they were getting into. Uh, there's a almost charming innocence to where they're talking about. Well, yeah, I mean, we were used to small communities that would police one another and there would be peer pressure, and it wasn't cool if you did a thing. Well, once you got it, once you hit a critical mass, at a certain point, self policing doesn't work anymore.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So they learned that the hard way (laughs) with people going in and ganking everybody. And then, of course, they had issues with gold farming and people. Stealing everything that wasn't locked down and turning that into gold that they were then selling online, and yeah. it, uh, but it was so insane. It's you had GMs who were uh, you had they had volunteer player GMs who basically had godlike powers who were on the de- on the sly uh, doing their own kind of like running their own side business, <laughs> <laughs> totally abusing the powers uh, that they had been given. <laughs>
1: Yeah, uh, completely
0: crazy. It's, uh, a,
1: it's funny we hear about this stuff in World of Warcraft's context, but this is where it all started.
0: Well, World of Warcraft was totally different, though. and uh, EverQuest learned a lot of lessons from Ultima Online. Was oh, Ultimately, right, uh, it was still pretty crazy, but not nearly as crazy as Ultima Online. And then by the time we got to World of Warcraft, it was a tightly controlled kind of amusement park, right? Right yeah things things had changed greatly and maybe the original vision maybe the original vision that drew me into that drew me toward mmorpgs originally definitely changed because they had envisioned a fully functioning world and i think we all kind of did that with mmorpgs back in the day it's like i'm gonna go live in this world and it's gonna be so cool um yeah maybe somebody's gonna totally gank me but whatever but uh i it kind of didn't work
1: yeah unfortunately uh you get jerks in the real world and you get jerks in the virtual world and that's your problem right there.
0: Yeah, people just want to F around and troll everybody. But, I mean, we do have uh, EVE Online. That was an instance of a game that was totally player-controlled uh, actually working, so.
1: Oh, I never played EVE Online, so I didn't know that it was actually ran a tight ship, so to speak.
0: Uh, well, that game's really interesting and it takes way too much to get into, but right. it, it works in the sense that Uh, The players basically created their own society on their own. And the whole point of that game is like power struggles. Mm. So, I mean, the developers basically allowed the players to create their own content in (laughs) constant warfare and that kind of thing. And it makes for some truly amazing stories, but I digress. All right, that was Ultima Online War Stories. Uh, Speaking of old school RPGs, another game that I got to try out was Bartail 4... And this game's really interesting to me, Nadia. Mm-hmm. Okay, so are you familiar with Bard's Tale?
1: A little bit, yeah. I never played much of it, though.
0: So th- this was a series back in the uh, 1980s. Right. Um And it was really, these games were particularly notable. They were, they were first-person dungeon-crawling RPGs. Right. Uh, the person who actually wrote them was about Christian uh, and included a lot of Christian references. But one of the things that was interesting was that one of the main characters was a bard, who would sing songs, and the songs would confer buffs? And this was one of the first times right. that we ever had the concept of buffs and debuffs in an
1: RPG. Especially from a bard, because that's what they do. Yes, exactly. Still. So,
0: so that was it. Was very notable for that, and maybe it had a little bit more of a story. It wasn't more of a straight dun- as much of a straight dungeon crawler as Wizardry was. Mm-hmm. And over the years. The uh, Western developers sort of fell away from the classic first-person dungeon crawler and moved toward isometric RPGs, yeah. Fallout, uh, stuff like uh, eventually the Bethesda folks came in and they started making Elder Scrolls. And we started having these big open-world RPGs and we got stuff like Skyrim and then Bioware was there with Mass Effect, etc., 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 right? Mm-hmm. MMORPGs and the meanwhile the first the classical first person dungeon crawler became more of a Japanese thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, Shin Megami just kind of yoinked it.
0: Yes, uh, I mean even Wizardry became a Japanese thing. Uh, You had uh, you uh, one of the most recent versions of Wizardry was made by a Japanese studio rather than Surtex Software. Yes, Uh, it's for the it's for the PlayStation Mm Three. So Mm -hmm. so. Uh, so, when we think of first-person dungeon crawlers now, we think of, what, Etrian Odyssey? Yeah. Uh, we think of uh Shimigami Tensei, and, and maybe we think of some others, and they're primarily Japanese. Um, I'm sure that there are other developers. Uh, I'm, I'm sure people can call me on, my, uh, on that and say that there are other developers out there, and I'm being overly reductive. But the reason I, I mention all this is that Bard's Tale 4 is coming out, and this is the first... True continuation of Bard's Tale mm-hmm. since uh, since like nineteen eighty
1: eight. Oh my god! No wonder I've never heard of it. I was eight years old. Well, I mean, heard of it, of course, but never played it.
0: Well, one of the big problems with it was that Bard's Tale uh, had there was a rights issue, oh. and essentially Brian Fargo had a hard time. He had the name, but he did not have the rights to the actual world Mm -hmm. uh the way that the games played so when they did bard's tale and i think like 2004 it was an action rpg it was totally different thing it just happened to have the name and wasn't particularly well received and he but now he's making a new bard's tale bard's tale 4 or his team is anyway i I would say brian fargo is more of a entrepreneur at this Mm -hmm. point yeah but bard's tale 4 is a very modern take on the first-person dungeon crawler, which I, I find pretty neat. It's very, very pretty right. and uh, like, like gorgeous. And it, I mean, it helps that there was—I was playing on a giant screen and everything. <laughs>
1: yeah, that'll do it.
0: <laughs> you have free movement, so you're not going on like your traditional kind of typical hex, like you might say in *Etrian Odyssey*. Right. And uh, you have a party. And the party can move around, okay? So, for example, in Entry in Odyssey, you have ranks, right? Yes. Or Persona Q or that kind of thing. You have the ranks. But in this game, the way it works is you still have ranks, but they can kind of move around on the fly. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of the combat is very positional-based, right? Right. So, this is where the actual squares kind of come into play. And you have a set pool of points to draw from. Mm Mm-hmm. And you can pick a whole, you can, you, so you get to use these moves to do various turns. You might be meditating to do a more powerful spell. Right. You might just straight up hit a person. Uh, you might do the usual tank thing to tank blows and that kind of thing. Right. And then of course you have the bard. The bard loves to drink. Not (laughs) the bard is, the bard is a total lush.
1: My kind of dude.
0: Uh, it's a lady actually.
1: Oh, my kind of lady.
0: Yes. Uh, Lady Drinker, who, uh, depending on what kind of alcohol you drink, she gets powered up. <laughs>
1: That's amazing. I drink whatever's cheapest, so I'm a cheap bard.
0: Yes, exactly. So she she totally, um, she's very powerful because she can hit uh, the entire enemy party and do a fair amount of damage, and she can also kind of do chip damage just by drinking the alcohol.
1: Wow. That's so Yeah. Talent.
0: Yeah, that is some talent. I, I thought it was pretty rad, so I, I was having a good time uh, in these in, in these different battles, and, and they can be they're Even just those initial battles were pretty intense because you uh, the enemies are fairly powerful and they can totally knock you out right. and totally do a lot of damage, and so you have to be very preemptive in the way that you move everybody around. Like you can be a really aggressive. In trying to do an attack, but in so doing, you can find yourself in a position where you're going to get hit really hard in return. So you have right. to be very tactical in that respect. So uh, another thing that's kind of neat about what this game does is when you claim a when you claim a piece of loot, there's a puzzle to it. Mm-hmm. So you have to go in and you have to kind of rotate the the pommel. To uh-huh. be able to unlock the powers that are involved in it.
1: <laughs> That's interesting.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about that, actually.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd be a little conflicted. I mean, I, I haven't played it, of course, you have. But, I don't know, part of the fun of an RPG is just, hey, you beat the boss, he, or you beat the enemy, here's your loot, here's your instant reward. That feels good.
0: Well, I think there's a role-playing element to it, mm-hmm. where, oh, I was just telling you about how Richard Garrett needed a story reason for there to be multiple servers in a particular game. This is kind of similar, right? Right. You're not just cr- pressing a button to inspect a thing. No, you are actually unlo- unlocking its power. You are manipulating this weapon. So right. it's this was fair. busy yeah. work, but I think it's an interesting idea that maybe puts you more into the world.
1: Yeah, okay. I-, I can accept that. But I don't know how I'd like it long term, to be honest with you.
0: Yes, the game is pretty enough that I'm a little nervous. I would be a little nervous about it actually being able to run on my computer.
1: <laughs> yeah, that bad, eh? Not coming to consoles?
0: Uh, Not yet. Uh, They're looking into it, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was going to say, oh, I'd
1: like to try it, but if it's super pretty, then I, I doubt I can run it on my crap-ass computer.
0: Hardcore PC RPG that is, I would say, fairly fun to play, fairly interesting. And... I would certainly re- recommend taking keeping an eye on it since you know it's based on a what's well, a 30-year-old series that is one of the old original pillars of role playing yeah, I would which say. It makes
1: me feel good that it's coming back for that reason alone.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And it's a little bit like Zork in the oh, sense God, that the original Zork games were text adventures as right. most people know. And then when the CD-ROMs came around, you had Return to Zork showing you the house with the mailbox for the first time. And that was pretty exciting, right? Yeah. And s- this is something similar with Bard's Tale 4, where um you are able to revisit old locations again for the first time and oh, see them in beautiful 4K 3D graphics <laughs> or whatever.
1: <laughs> that is pretty cool. That makes my old heart happy.
0: Yes, exactly. So that's Bard's Tale 4. And I suppose the last game that I got to play was a it's a little game called Zanky Zero. Have you heard of this one, Nadia?
1: No, I have not, but it sounds uh very zanky.
0: And it's by the folks who created Danganropa, okay? Right. And this is not a text adventure, it is a survival RPG. Ooh. And it's very weird.
1: Yeah, I'm not surprised. We're talking Danganropa here.
0: I'm actually not sure how to describe it entirely. <laughs> <laughs> but what it boils down to essentially is that Eight people wake up in a post-apocalyptic world, and they are the eight, the last eight people remaining. Wow, depressing. And seven of them represent the seven deadly sins, because of course. Of course. And then one of them represents original sin. And, oh, by the way, they're clones.
1: Okay. Clones of each other? Like, one person cloned eight times, or?
0: No, they're all different clones, but they're clones. Okay. And the additional kicker is that they only live 13 days.
1: Oh, of course, it's the number thirteen.
0: Yes, and so they steadily age, as each day passes, they grow older. Wow! And if they, di- but if they die, they can regenerate.
1: Wow! This sounds like kind of fucked up, but kind of cool.
0: Yes. Um, also, there is a like 1950s Fallout Four Fallout style show that has like a lot of weird humor. That I imagine Dungeon Ropa fans will find hilarious, but
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, these people are dying every day. But
0: I mentioned first person dungeon crawlers. A lot of this game is basically a, a first person dungeon crawler. The battles are real time, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you just have to wait uh, for your attacks to finish cooling down, and then you can strike. And you can also call in your the rest of your party to hit. Um, Each chapter focuses on a different character uh, that you're playing with. And as the game progresses, so you're looking through multiple different point of views, Mm -hmm. but you can all, you can choose whatever party you want. And as the game progresses, of course, like they're getting older, Yeah. but if they die, they come back as a child. Oh God. And they're weaker. Wow. Okay. And so there is actually benefit to aging them up a little bit so that they're actually useful. It's, there's a lot going on in this game, Nadia. Yeah.
1: By the way, just grab it. What's it coming out for?
0: So Zanki Zero will be on the PlayStation 4 and the PC. In Japan, though, it is not on the Switch. It is on the PS Vita.
1: Oh, good for the Vita. Yes. Way so, to go,
0: guy. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to play this game portably, and this honestly does seem like a game that you would want to enjoy portably, uh, maybe the Vita version is the kind of game that you would want to get. <laughs>
1: still wouldn't mind seeing it on the switch to be honest with you but
0: yeah it's pretty though i mean the characters are all fully animated and fully voiced
1: mm-hmm. awesome
0: uh i actually asked them if they were ever gonna planning to put Ropa on the switch and they said do you think it would sell and i was like yes
1: I yes think i think it would sell sells on the switch right?
0: but now? i think Ropa is right in that game that on that systems wheelhouse and i think i think it would get a pretty strong push to be perfectly honest
1: yeah i agree it's a good dark Ropa
0: collection right yeah all right that is a few of the rpg related things that i saw at gdc i mentioned that i interviewed mike laidlaw and david Brevik. you should look forward to my interviews with them going up next week But in the meantime, let's talk a little bit about Nino Kuni Two Nadia, which came out today, and we've already we already kind of did a review. I, I suppose the first uh, the first thing I want to say though is um, there will be I, I suppose very minor spoilers of like the initial moments, so yeah, you like should just like literally the opening moments, first five
1: minutes if that.
0: But so I would suppose that you might want to watch out for that aspect of it if you're like super. <laughs> super uh, sensitive to spoilers it is kind of an interesting surprise but yeah okay so even you've been, even you've been duly warned
1: <laughs> yes
0: so last week I talked a lot about Nino Kuni 2 and uh, at the time I had not finished it yet and I might have been a little too dismissive of it and when I say dismissive of it I was goofing on it pretty hard I was I was kind of saying eh, it's not too much there's not much there etc 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 I and having now finished it, I am so frustrated by it, Nadia.
1: <laughs> you, uh, you stand. By, do you stand by your review score still?
0: Of course, of oh, course, okay. I stand by my review score. But I am frustrated by this game because I think that if a few things were different, this game would be on the short list, my game of the year. Mm-hmm. And instead, it is padded to hell and back. Like the padding is a huge problem in this game, in my personal opinion. It, it, it's very frustrating because. Basically, what happens is in order to access the end game, you have to uh, upgrade your castle to level three. And the way okay. you upgrade your castle is that you have to recruit people. And the way you recruit people is by completing f- fetch quests. Right. <laughs> I, I, I In my review, I I called it harvesting a kingdom citizens. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like a reaper. Because that's kind of cool. what you are. You just kind of show up.
0: You run up to a person. You do them a favor. You, you bring them a thing or you kill a monster or whatever. Sometimes... Sometimes they go running around, and you have to chase them and talk to them. <laughs> they run away. <laughs> and, I don't want
1: to join your kingdom? Oh, you do must.
0: And by the end, I I was like, hey. Uh, and by the end, you say, hey, come move to my kingdom, and they're like, I believe I will go move to your kingdom. I'm like one last for you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Resistance is uh, futile. Just saying.
0: So I, in order, so when I got toward the end of the game, I had like thirty five citizens in my kingdom. Right. And I had. Uh, 35 citizens in my kingdom, like 25 buildings built, and you have to have 50 citizens. So I had to do 15 more fetch quests, which was pretty time-consuming because not only do you have to do the fetch quests, you have to find the people.
1: Right. Yeah,
0: you, you have to run around and look for the little exclamation marks to talk to the people to get them to give you the fetch quests. And some of the fetch quests are fairly hard to do because it's like, where do I get this item? I have to have this to be able to get this item or I have to go looking for this item or... How like how quickly can I get this particular fetch quest done so that I can get this person into my castle? Right. And the other thing is, uh, you have to save up kings guilders. Kings guilders are these the special currency that is in your castle that you accrue over time.
1: Right. About and
0: those. it it costs a hundred thousand kings guilders to upgrade your castle. Okay. Oh. That's a lot of kings guilders, <laughs> and in order and and you have to wait pretty much and also by the way you have to spend the king's guilders to buy the the requisite number of facilities needed to upgrade your castle oh
1: boy okay i see where this is going and i don't you can't even send out like hooded guards like shake people down for their taxes either i <laughs> suppose
0: i mean that is your taxes like you're totally okay, you're tax totally taxes. accruing the taxes that's what we were joking about last week yeah. where you every time you come back roland's like huh uh people have been contributing freely all of their material goods, and I was Quote like, unquote, "Thank many
1: you." Any quotes? Freely. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
0: freely. Everybody's building the castle together in air quotes. But I, what I ended up doing was I was putting my controller down and just letting it accrue money while I worked, and periodically checking on it and wow, emptying it's like
1: it out. Sim City in the olden days.
0: Not the greatest way to actually play a game. And then also, I i mean, I had a podcast on and I was rolling through fetch quests so that I could actually freaking finish this game. And I maybe, like, the game is expecting you to kind of take it at your own pace. I was playing it as naturally as humanly possible. I was playing right. it the way that I would normally play it, and I found that by playing it at a normal pace, I ended up in a position where I had to do a lot of grinding to get to the end, and it felt like padding. It felt like they... tacked on an extra five to 10 hours of mandatory fetch quests and grinding. I I didn't think that was particularly cool. And as I've been telling people all week, Nadia, I I think that the better way to uh, approach it would have been to make leveling up your kingdom to level three optional as Uh a thing that you can do after the credits roll, or you can do it if you want to continue to power up your characters because you're having a hard time with the final boss, because the final boss actually is fairly difficult and then once you've, and at a certain point, if you've leveled up your kingdom completely, maybe there's a reward where you get to fight a particularly powerful boss.
1: Right. Yeah. Something like that would be would be pretty fair. But, uh, uh, yeah. I just started, so I haven't really gotten sucked into any mm-hmm. of the grinding yet. Um, I actually just finished chapter one. I'm into chapter two now. All right. Well, let's talk
0: about the beginning, Nadia. Uh,
1: yeah. Let's talk about that. Um, yeah,
0: it's pretty interesting, isn't it? <laughs>
1: Well, it's like, like I said on the Slack channel, I said, oh, oh, I'm playing, you know Cooney too. No, oh, you're watching Terminator 2, bitch. And then everything blows up. It's <laughs> <laughs> a nuclear fireball. It's it's a little bit, what the hell?
0: Yeah. So the very first thing that happens, the very first thing you see is an older Roland in a limo and he's heading into kind of what looks like New York or yeah, a mix of New York or San Francisco or something like that. Some and topics. then... All of a sudden, mushroom clouds. He, he looks up, he sees the missile flying past. Yeah. And then, boom.
1: Everything
0: And up. it's messed up. And it made me think about, like, it made me think about how often we've seen nuclear bombs in games. I mean, we've seen them in Fallout. That That's a key part of the backstory.
1: Yeah, they, they did it really well in Fallout 4.
0: Yeah, I-, I thought so. Uh, there was a really great moment where you're running toward the Fallout shelters in yeah. Fallout 4. But it almost feels unreal in Fallout 4, because, or in Fallout in general, because it's it's set in the future, and this it's this retro future, and it feels pretty divorced from our current reality.
1: Yeah, you got a point there.
0: Yeah, so there's that. There's also Call of Duty.
1: Oh, right. They had that scene, too.
0: Yeah, well, they seem to nuke something in Call of Duty pretty much every game.
1: <laughs> <laughs> At least modern in Modern Warfare. warfare. Yeah. Yeah,
0: in, in Modern Warfare 1, your character dies in a nuclear explosion, which right. was pretty amazing. It was one of the cooler things I've ever seen yeah, in a I game. That. And I believe in Modern Warfare 2, an American city actually gets nuked, and that was a pretty intense experience. I
1: actually can't remember. It was Modern Warfare 1 or 2 that had it actually had the warning like you would see on television. It was actually pretty terrifying
0: hmm yeah well they had that in Fallout four as well yeah it was very a day after
1: yeah exactly
0: yes uh you know that terrifying moment of the 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 test pattern warning appearing on your screen and 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 everybody like running toward the fallout shelters and then looking over and seeing the giant mushroom cloud yeah
1: yeah oh I, i know it well i've seen i've seen the day after i've seen threads i've seen them all
0: yeah exactly and I mean, uh, the pair of us were kind of around, right around the end of the Cold War. Yeah. I actually
1: do remember very clearly. uh, We didn't have the emergency broadcast system in Canada, but we did have it come over the States. Like, they would Mm -hmm. test uh, that that damn siren, which, of course, is when you're like, I was four, five, six. It was terrifying. You're trying to watch Sesame Street, and (laughs) and, hey, guess what, everyone? You're going to die.
0: I guess uh, the first time that I understood nuclear apocalypse or something was when i watched terminator 2 right and that that insanely terrifying scene of the of judgment's day and it kind of remains seared into my memory to this day and like i even to some extent have like recurring nightmares about it and so do i actually i guess uh i would say that nuclear apocalypse is terrifying to me because it feels well, it's real. It's a thing that could actually happen.
1: Yeah, very easily. Unfortunately,
0: yes. And you never know. Like you could wake up one day and oh, the bombs have fallen. Yeah, <laughs> there have been like something to, on order of like twenty different, twenty or thirty different occasions where we almost had a nuclear apocalypse, and it was just avoided because one person refused to launch the bombs mm-hmm. or. I mean, one of the most famous examples was in 1995, of all things. Have you heard of this one? Where America launched a satellite into space. And somehow the Russians weren't informed. So they there was, like, an unauthorized launch. Right. And they brought the nuclear football to Boris Yeltsin, oh, who, geez. I mean, <laughs> was known for drinking and basically said, America might have launched.
1: Oh, what do you want to do? Wow. Of course. Yeah. Mutually assured destruction. One side does it. The other side says they have to. Uh,
0: The the upshot of all this is that when you depict a nuclear disaster, you are evoking, I think, very powerful and primal feelings. uh, Is that fair to say?
1: I think so. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Because, I mean, the primal fear of nuclear apocalypse was seared into our parents uh memories certainly during the cold war and now i mean you have north korea wanting to launch nukes and everything so what i'm saying essentially is if you go there if you are going to launch nukes maybe maybe don't do it lightly and so so it caught me off guard. Let's just say that. <laughs> How did you feel? I mean, you already knew about it, so it wasn't a surprise to you.
1: No, it wasn't a huge surprise. But I see what you're getting at bec- in terms of okay, if you're going to see this thing through, see it through because uh, when you get when you finish that whole scene in Nino Kuni, Roland basically gets transported somehow, some way to Ding Dong Dell, and there's your first freaking problem. Okay, number one, he's like, oh, I i don't know what happened like you just saw your city get turned to ashes i'm assuming now here i will give him this much credit he says he thinks he's dead for a minute there and so okay maybe he's playing along with this but then he's very quickly sucked up into this coup that evan's going through and he seems to kind of regain his senses and he remembers i was a leader of a country but it just blew up, dude. You're not you're not traumatized. You're not wondering what happened, what, where mm. did I go wrong? Because if the free world gets exploded, and you are the president of the whatever states of whatever, you are partially responsible for this this thing that just happened that might have ended the world. And you're you're effing around and ding dong dell and and seemingly pretty carefree about the whole thing. Like, I you're more worried about this little kid who you don't know, uh, who's being chased by rats or whatever, than you are about. <laughs> this this world that you came from that's probably all gone that everything you knew is gone and you don't care i guess you think you're your dead. family
0: might have died in a nuclear fire
1: <laughs> yeah but like i said to you on uh, on slack i first 10 minutes okay i swear on the first like five minutes of the game yes okay everything gets nuked roland wakes up and he sees evan and evan screams how he's the king of ding dong dell and i nearly lost it because the the, the switch in tone <laughs> just made me, like, just trigger something in my brain that made me almost start to laugh and not stop. And my husband was in the bath. He's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, I can't even explain it to you. And
0: yet, I mean, this is very Ghibli thing, right? Where uh, Ghibli has often made it extremely dark with fantastical visions of of fantasy. I mean, we saw that in, for example, Mononoke, a, a, a thing that had this beautiful fantasy... Uh, Forests, but also crazy shit like I don't know, evil tar monsters taking over animals and like heads flying around and snapping off people's arms and stuff. Mononoke or
1: never, never really—I uh, didn't mean to interrupt there, but Mononoke never really clashed the way that no. this does. I mean, Mononoke or also, Totoro. Totoro, I mean, Totoro
0: is pretty dark.
1: I'm trying to think what was so dark about Totoro. It was
0: Do, I mean, the the two kids weren't they like kind of. Uh, having this escapist thing, like, I don't remember the exact plot, but, I mean... I know that
1: they moved to, like They
0: were compensating for something.
1: Well, yeah, because their mom was sick. Their mom was in a sanitarium. Uh, I
0: mean, like, I would say that's fairly dark.
1: That's pretty dark. And they were, yeah, and yeah, they were very much compensating for the fact that, I guess, they were lonely, their father was busy, and I... One thing that's actually really sad is as they grow up, they kind of lose their friendship with the spirits. You mm. see that in the end credits. But even Mononoke like was very much just a movie about turmoil and what's good and what's bad because Lady Iboshi, who is the quote unquote villain. Yes. She's destroying nature for her uh, gun manufacturing business and her iron making business, but she's also employing lepers and prostitutes and people who mm. have no other place in society. But on the other hand, she's killing gods. So
0: <laughs> my point is, is that it's not completely out of the realm of possibility. Um, for a Ghibli film to open with a nuke, followed by one of the main characters, like one of the main characters nuking, or sorry, <laughs> witnessing the nuking of their city, followed by them being transported to a different world or something. Right, right. And I, it. I, I think that's actually fairly thematically appropriate. And what is weird, though, is how quickly everything changes, exactly, as you said, exactly. where he seems to forget everything that happened to him in the in the the first 5 minutes of the game and i'm like well i mean that's a hell of a hook uh the the first minute of the game is a hell of a hook
1: yeah absolutely and
0: i i was like i'm in okay i'm in uh i i'm ready to roll with this and the game seemingly forgets that it even happened for a very long period of time. And I I found that pretty disappointing, actually.
1: Yeah, that was very disappointing because you're absolutely right. I have nothing against the fact that he was transported to a weird, fantastical world, but just the fact that he just dropped it so fast and is wrapped up in Evan's politics when his own politics are completely effed up and he has no idea what they are. And he just, you're the president and he doesn't care. And he holds his broadsword like a samurai sword. (laughs)
0: Well, it's not that, it's, he's not actually that major of a character. I mean, yes, he's important, and he's often consulting with with Evan Pettywhisker and all that, but Evan is the main character.
1: Right. In fact,
0: Evan really is funny. almost the only character who matters.
1: Oh, that's right, you were kind of explaining that last time. I mean, I already met Nella, and unfortunately mm-hmm. she passed away. Uh, spoilers mm-hmm. there, but not too far into She's the Nadia. <laughs> yes,
0: I mean, that is in the first minute, or that is in the opening the scenes hour. of the game. Yes, yeah.
1: Um, But I was going to ask you quickly, okay, um, do they ever explain why some of these cat people are full-on cats and why some are human? Like, Nella is, I guess she's a cat person because she has little fish earrings, which are actually really cute, but I don't see any cat features on her, whereas Evan has just the ears and the tail, and then there's just, like, full-on Siamese people walking around.
0: If they did, I missed it. Uh, Um, I was wondering that myself because uh, at one point you see Evan's father and he's a lion.
1: Right, okay.
0: So maybe Evan was growing into a lion.
1: Sure, why not? Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I know that, <laughs> I know that um, Secret of Mana 2, uh, sorry, Secret of three three has uh, a character named Kevin, who's, um, his father's like a, a beast person, wolf person, his mother's a human, so he's kind of like in between like Evan was, but we don't really see his mother's uh, Evan's mother, as I understand it, so.
0: You have dog people, you have cat people. I think the dogs live in... Uh, kind of chinese vegas type gambling kingdom you have the cat people who live in ding dong dell who also live with the rat people in a kind of uneasy racial type thing with the rat people living in the ghettos and then eventually rising up and overthrowing the cats
1: see that's one thing that bothers me also about the uh the narrative is um it's not rats it's mice and yes. Like I sorry, said to,
0: the mice people.
1: Yeah, and the only reason that bothers me is because making mice like the whole game starts with a, a bloody coup. Like you have no idea why these people are wanting to kill Evan, but basically they want to kill a little boy who's more or less helpless, and they're very they're very, being very snarky and mean about it. So you don't feel like these mice have a good reason to to do this, even though maybe they do. I don't know. I haven't reached that point yet. But having mice as villains does not work for me rats is a it's a trope it's a stereotype sure i could deal with it but mice have always been like you got red wall you got mouse you've got all these roles where they've always been like protectors and victims and like yes they can fight but they've always they've never been like um instigators so seeing mice as as instigators i don't know you can subvert tropes absolutely but those are very that's a very powerful trope that's a hard one to to really get around i don't think so far nino cooney is really selling it for me
0: I guess I didn't think about it that way.
1: <laughs> uh, maybe I'm the only. I one. I mean, I've read I've
0: read a lot of Redwall over the years, yeah, and
1: I've, I've read so much. And I will say, actually, one thing I was disappointed when they're talking about oh, my, Evans talking about his nursemaid. I'm like, oh, cool. She's gonna be like a badger, like Constantine. <laughs> no, <laughs> Constance that was her name. Nadia, this
0: isn't Redwall.
1: <laughs> I know, but I wanted a badger.
0: <laughs> oh, we'll buy you one when we're coming home from, oh <laughs> uh, from on the way to pass the pet store.
1: But not even Redwall had like not Redwall's not the only one that has that mouse trope to it. Like I said, there's mm. a, the actual book mouse, which has like the representation of mice as like the Jews and the cats as the the Nazi Germany. Like, uh, well,
0: you'll forgive me. Uh, Redwall had a problem with the fact that it had animals that were always evil.
1: Oh, no kidding. Oh, trust me. We'll we'll have a podcast about that someday.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start a Redwall podcast.
1: Let's do it. (laughs) But like I said, you can subvert the trope, absolutely. But you have to do it well, and so far, like I said, it's just not selling me on it yet.
0: So Mm.
1: that's that's my main issue.
0: I mean, I guess it's just within the internal logic of this world. The mice are a particular people, and they felt like they were being uh that for whatever reason they were being uh oppressed by the cats and eventually rose up and that's how it goes and it's
1: interesting because the the new thundercats uh cartoon which a lot of people didn't watch kind of had that going on with the really the bad guys like you know how you always had the lizards and the mutants as the bad guys and the cats as the good guys well in the new cartoon you did find out that the cats were like just really awful rulers who were oppressing mutants and whatnot uh, I feel like you know, Ni 2 has a lot of story-telling po- potential that's just, from what you've been telling me and from what I, I've played so far, is not going to be explored as well as it could. That's disappointing.
0: I think it does the racism thing better than the nuke thing. Okay,
1: <laughs> that's good to know.
0: On the other hand, I think I described this game as a fairy tale the last time we discussed it. Yes. And I stand by that. It is right. a fairy tale with very strong anime influences. And it dips a toe into the waters of being a Ghibli game or a Ghibli story, but it seems kind of afraid to follow through or, or it doesn't have enough time to follow through because it feels weird to say that about a game that's like 25 hours long when a Ghibli film is like two hours long, but it does feel abbreviated as an Mm. RPG. As I said, there's a lot of padding at the end and uh yeah i i I could go on but beyond that like how far are you and what are your thoughts beyond uh the whole mouse thing and the new thing uh
1: like i said i'm around the start of chapter two so i have actually Mm. gotten quite a few battles in um
0: what do you think of the battle system
1: I'm so-so on it. Uh, I remember you saying last week that it was a little bit simplistic, a little bit overcomplicated for its own good, whereas button mashing will get you through most fights, and so far, yes, that has been the case. Uh, I have been using skills once in a while, but I haven't really needed to, you know what I mean?
0: I kind of got a—I found a good strategy toward the end of the game, Mm -hmm. which was I recruited a character who had a hammer— and she had an ability that would create a very powerful healing circle. Right. And consequent- and with that healing circle, I almost never died again because yeah. it was very powerful and I could keep my two party members, which are Roland and Evan, inside them. Uh, oh. There's some interesting stuff going on in terms of powering up abilities. Um, the- you can power up your abilities using the Heagledies by holding X on top of them and if you if that ability has a powered up version, then it will become better, which mm-hmm. is kind of interesting. but also, I didn't feel especially like I needed to use those abilities because right. I was able to mostly get through by using the healing circles, uh some of the uh a lot of the basic attacks uh and that sort of thing so. Yeah, the battle system is fairly hack and slash. Um, yeah. So a lot of systems piled on top of it, and ultimately it's not that deep. <laughs>
1: yeah, and it's like you can, uh, you also have the, the trick where you can lock onto someone and strafe and, you know, roll away when they do their tells, and so far, uh, it, I was a little bit worried when I went up against uh, the Black Knight and he reveals his true form. I was like, oh, I'm going to die, and I came quite close, but that's a scripted uh, event, of mm.
0: course. Mm. He looks pretty uh, cool, I have to say. Yeah, yeah, he is pretty cool. Uh, did you see the? Uh, have you seen the Overworld?
1: Uh, not yet. I think I'm about to step out onto that. Hmm. Uh, so I, I said that it was pretty
0: ugly, and people in the review comments were saying, "You don't know what you're talking about." <laughs> and I'm a little confused because I'm trying to figure out how I how the Overworld might be attractive. I'm not sure. So.
1: Uh, from what I've seen of videos of the Overworld, to have seen previews and what have you, uh, it doesn't look that great. It's a no. very. I think I totally agree with you when it clashes with what's otherwise a very pretty world. Like mm-hmm. the, I went through the the sewers of the castle, and they look great. The enemies look great. The anime great. Water effects are nice. So yeah,
0: I seem to be I seem to be in the minority with this game. Uh, You're not it's totally received. In the minority, well, I mean, it's received really good reviews.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh People really seem to like it, and I. Schreier loved it. Well, I mean, Schreier loved it, and I, I admittedly I have not read his review, but uh, from what I'm able to gather, he was a big fan of the twists uh, that some of the twists that come toward the end. He was a big fan of the castle building mechanic. Um, as we as we kind of expected, he was le- likening it to uh, Suikoden. Yeah. And that kind of thing, which we were uh, a little uncertain of. And I don't know, like, maybe sometimes I wonder if it's just uh, like just a matter of taste or something, because I was having drinks with somebody the other night and they were on the fence about whether or not they would get Nino know Kuni too. And I looked at them and forgive me, I don't exactly remember who I was talking to. But for some reason, I looked at them and I said, I think you'll like it.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you think- said that to me too
0: knowing who you are, I think you will probably like Nino Kuni too, because maybe there are people who have kind of this OCD need to do fetch quests and find it relaxing perhaps. And there are people who are completionist and are just going to do all of that stuff anyway, and are just going to thoroughly enjoy every last second of it and won't even notice the padding. And if that's the case, then I guess the combat system is relatively relaxing. The graphics are generally really pretty. Uh, The story could be better, but it ultimately has a a couple of decent twists uh, toward the end, and it has this bright, optimistic point of view that I think there are plenty of people who would find pretty appealing.
1: Yeah, in this day and age especially. So I plan to keep on playing, and I hope I'll have something to write about it next week.
0: Oh, we gotta finish Cosmic Star Heroine.
1: <laughs> yes, we do. I think I'm further ahead than you though. I think I'm getting close to yeah. you. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean the last couple of weeks have not been an ideal yeah, time. Yeah, sorry about actually...
1: that. Cosmic Star Heroine fan. It's not, yeah. it's not you, it's us. It's totally us.
0: No, it totally is because uh, I mean last this this past week I've been gone at GDC all week and then the week before that I was completely locked in on Nino Kuni Two and had to finish that one. And plus, I also went to a God of War event in Santa Monica, and I had to write about that. Not a lot of time to be playing Cosmic Star Heroin, though. Oh,
1: unfortunately, it's not on the Switch yet.
0: Though, I believe it is on the Vita.
1: Oh, is it, out? Is it on the Vita?
0: I think so. I, I want to say, if it's not on the Vita now, yeah, then it is going to be out very soon, because I've seen uh, Robert Boyd uh, talking about it. It'll be out... Uh, It should be out before too long, regardless. Um, I'm not seeing an actual release date for the Vita version yet. So, In any case, I I think the way we're going to handle the Cosmic Star Heroine report is we will come back to it when we finish it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's what we're doing.
0: Yeah, we'll come back to it when we finish it, and we'll do a wrap-up episode, and then we'll pick our our next game to do the uh, report series on. Okay, Nadia, last week we talked about Ninokuni 2 and God of War, two great tastes that taste great together. Drakmalia said, It was nice to hear Kat's thoughts on Ninokuni 2. I never played the first one, but was considered trying the sequel, but I think I'm going to skip it for now. I've been playing a bunch of old games lately anyway, thinking of finally playing Planeskip Torment next since I picked it up in a sale a few months ago. On the subject of God of War, it sounds like they're trying to bring in new players with all the changes. I mean, who isn't, right? Yeah. Something about the character of Kratos has never really appealed to me, and suddenly making him another bad dad in a video game isn't really helping. (laughs) Uh, I would have liked liked it to have been the husband and wife team. Yeah, I was
1: actually going to say that. Um, I love stories where it's like partners, adult Mm. partners together on a quest, because um, not that I hate kids or anything, not that I dislike them even, but I just don't find them... Quite as interesting as some people do, I guess other parents maybe mm-hmm so yeah uh,
0: Max Beto says Nino Kuni always looked like it was directed specifically at kids very simple, not much character growth. I platinum Nino Kuni one was never satisfied with it man you platinum Nino Kuni a game that you did not like <laughs> I'm sorry Max Pito, I'm <laughs> very sorry.
1: the power of Satan compels you apparently uh,
0: the world was beautiful, but the characters were expressionless and bland and never faced any problems beyond. What car- fairy tale characters deal with in stories you tell a four-year-old? From what I've seen, the sequel has the same problem. The basic combat looks much more fun, at least. And there's definitely a market for such a game. It's just not for me. Uh, we mentioned Schreier's opinion on it and how he seemed to like the quest and the uh, the 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 big twist at the end. And when I saw the the big twist at the end, I first thought, "Well, I'm, I've watched anime before, and this is very anime."
1: <laughs> I look forward to that.
0: Yeah, so please look forward to that one. But I'm sure there will be plenty of people who are like, oh, but I really liked it. it w- what a twist.
1: What a twist.
0: <laughs> um, Drac- uh, and he, uh, Max Beto, the individual Max Beto said, I just recently played Planescape Torment for the first time as well. I thought I would hate playing it, but it wasn't quite as bad as I feared since it was very much not focused on combat, much like uh, Torment Ties Numenera, actually. Reading dialogue takes up most of the game, and the penalty for failure is minimum, so minimal. So, it's a fairly stress free experience. Although, a guide helps if you get stuck like I did, not knowing which one out of 300 NPCs I needed to exhaust all dialogue with to progress. Ugh, oh my gosh. uh, And Benjamin Lou 86 says, I can say with confidence, this is the first time I've wholeheartedly agreed with Cat's politics with Nino Kuni2. <laughs> nice. There you go. Evan Betty Whisker, first against the wall. <laughs> Let me tell you. In any case, uh, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to your thoughts on Nino you know, Kuni too. I, in respect to my own thoughts, I regret a little bit speaking a little too broadly about it last week. Um, given time to chew on it, I think there is more merit to it than the way I was describing it. I was, I think, I was being fairly dismissive, but at the same time, there are some, like I said, there are some things that. Re- that really frustrated me about it and the way the story ultimately plays out is a big one yeah. the the added padding is another and things like the overworld and that kind of thing and the way that the character a, a lot of the side characters aren't very well integrated into the story and I know that I'm being kind of a killjoy with this game and everything but I I'm, I wish that it were better because I feel so close to a game that I would have really loved
1: exactly no, I understand your frustration, and even just playing the hour that I have, I, I already understand some of your criticism, so I don't know if I'd give it your score, I'd have to play a little bit more before I know, but um, so far, I don't think you were coming out of left field on it.
0: And in the meantime, I'm going to play another RPG. Nadia, are you ready for this? Yes. And we'll be the show, oh Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Time to hit the baseballs all over the place with the balls and the and the bat and the field and the smell of the green grass and the running and the running and the running, running around running. around and around and around the baseball diamond. Hours. Yeah, that's what baseball is all about, and it's an RPG now or something. I don't know. Actually, when I was talking to David Brevik today, uh, name drop, uh, we were talking about what an RPG is, and I believe I said that a RPG in my mind is basically: do you have agency over the development of a character? Right. And is the game primarily focused around that? Right. And that can take many different shapes and forms, right? And I think your typical action game or something to that effect focuses most of the action. Yes, you are developing your character, but it's in service of the action, right? whereas an RPG is much more inward looking. The The progress is an end of it in itself. The satisfaction of building up a character is an end in itself. Uh, Which is a lot anyway, of a, a good, games. A good RPG doesn't even necessarily have to good, have a good story. A freaking dungeon crawler is like, uh, and then you got really powerful and you slayed the dragon yeah. or whatever, right? Yeah. yeah, You went through the dungeon, you became powerful... You got uh, a a lot better weapons, and then you fought the dragon, and life was good. You win. Which is to say that MLB The Show is totally an RPG, because, (laughs) I mean, there's one particular mode that is all about growing your superstar baseball player.
1: Do you get to fight dragons with it?
0: Oh, man, I wish. That would be really great. That'd
1: be really awesome. It throws baseballs at you, like, instead of breathing fire, it's like a pitching machine.
0: There was a commercial, I would say, 15 years ago at this point, it was for the U.S. Marines... And in this commercial, a marine is in, I don't know, like this kind of 90s commercial where he's climbing up a mountain, and there's fire everywhere, and it's really intense. And then at a certain point, he takes a sword, and he (laughs) slashes at a dragon, (laughs) and the dragon's like, rawr, dies. And then the dragon, or the sword becomes the marine sword, and his outfit becomes the marine outfit, and he does the marine salute.
1: Wow. Wow.
0: And my point is is that I think it would be better if that guy were a baseball player instead of that became a video game.
1: <laughs> Man, U.S. Armed Forces commercials are next level.
0: Yes, and on that note, Exit God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Follow us on all of the social medias. The underscore Capod is for me. Nadia Oxford is at Nadia Oxford. And if you like the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. We always appreciate hearing from our fans. I'm sorry that we did not do a US Gamer podcast or streaming this week, but normally we do a US Gamer podcast on Wednesday and normally we do streaming on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So please subscribe to the US Gamer podcast and all of those channels I just described as well as Twitch for our streams. We didn't do the US Gamer Podcast because uh, Katie, Matt, and I were all on the GDC show floor being very busy, yes. and Nadia and Mike needed to be on call. Also, all of the games came out this week. You may all have the, heard. Yeah,
1: yeah, that was really great. All of the games came out this week. Like Matt, uh, not Matt, sorry. Mike was really busy with Sea of Thieves and Far Cry mm. 5, and mm. it was just a bad week.
0: <laughs> yeah, see, Nino Coney 2 came out this week. Sea of Thieves came out this week and will be the show embargo went up uh, this week. I, I mean, I suppose it would be last week as of the release of this podcast. And uh, there was something, oh yeah, A Way Out. Uh, it was oh, just right. It was just a crazy, crazy week. So I, I'm amazed that we got through it. And now like Mike's reviewing Far Cry 5 as well, which is awesome. A game that is not an RPG. <laughs> <laughs> so... But hopefully things will calm down a little bit before I head off to PAX East where I will be checking out even more games. It's that time of year, Nadia. It It really is. It is event season. But until then, for Nadia and myself, thanks for listening and we'll see you again real soon. Until then, happy adventuring.